party people. This is Me, Myself, and Millie, a podcast about pop culture and hot gossip through the lens of your nosy neighbor. I'm your host, Millie Brooks, and your resident nosy neighbor. This is episode 32, and today the topic is five things to consider when choosing a fertility clinic. And with me to discuss these important factors is my friend Aaron Jeter. Before I recorded this episode, Aaron and I talked about the most important things to us when choosing a clinic to go with for fertility treatments. And we came up with this list of five things, five factors, to take into consideration. Obviously, we are not healthcare professionals. We are just two gals on a similar fertility journey, sharing our experience and hope regarding choosing the right fertility clinic. In other news... Next week, we will be doing a deep dive book review of Waiting for Daisy by Peggy Ornstein. It's a best-selling memoir of Peggy's quest for parenthood. It begins when she tells her new husband that she's not sure she ever wants to be a mother. It ends six years later after she's done almost everything humanly possible to achieve that goal. Buffeted by one obstacle after another, Peggy seeks answers both medically and spiritually in America and Asia, all the while trying to hold on to a marriage threatened by cycles, appointments, procedures, and disappointments. Waiting for Daisy is both an intimate page-turner and a funny report from the front lines of conception. So if you're following along, make sure to read that book before next Monday. Okay, let's chat with Erin. All righty, we are here with Erin Jeter. Welcome to the show, Erin. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me, Millie. Of course. Let's... um. Let's start the convo off with um, telling people how we met. So Millie and I met, I think it was the beginning of this year of 2020, um, before it went to hell in a handbasket, but we <laughs> met um, at a, a virtual, um, we met at a, a Resolve meeting and we've been doing Resolve meetings since. So if you don't know what Resolve is, it's a group for women that are experiencing infertility and um, there's meetups in different areas. So um Millie attended, I think, two of the ones that I was hosting in person, and then we connected, exchanged um, information, and we've been in touch ever since, which I'm extremely thankful for, especially given the times um, right now when we can't go out and, you know, meet new people. So it's been um, a really good opportunity just to exchange stories and um, have somebody that's going through the same experience as you. Yeah, I have Erin on speed dial. She's like on <laughs> my top 10. I mean, I probably talked to Aaron. I text with Aaron 
more than I text my own family members at this point. <laughs> because they just don't get it. Like, my mom said something to me yesterday and just, like, sent me over the edge. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> this conversation's ending because you just don't get it. Like, I understand you're trying to help, but you don't understand what I'm going through. So um, it's right. definitely, it's been life-changing. I've been on this journey, and I think we'll get there in the next um question. I've been on this journey for like a year and a half. So the last few months of having somebody um, to talk to that understands it is, you know, has changed so much. It changed. It's a game changer, finding your tribe, your your infertility tribe. Um, Well, let's, that kind of dovetails into um, your story. Why don't you give us a little glimpse into your fertility journey so far and tell us a little bit about your husband and how you guys met? So, um, my husband's name is Nelson. We've, um, been together 10 years coming up this year will be 10 years. We've been married, um, coming up on two years. We met through a mutual friend. I always laugh because the story that I tell and the story that he tells are two different stories, but my story is the truth and his is like a figment of his (laughs) imagination. But, um, we met through a mutual friend that was kind of like a blind date in 2010 and here we are now. So, um, that's a story about how we met. We've been like ever since we've been dating, we knew like we wanted to have a family. Both of us are really close with our family. So um, Nelson has a brother. I have a sister. So we knew like we want two kids. We want to have a family similar to the families that we were raised up in. Um, But we wanted to get married first. So we got married um, and then we wanted to enjoy that time of being married. So after we got married, we we waited about six months. So that was a compromise. I wanted to kind of like jump right in. Nelson wanted to wait a year. So we decided like, let's settle on the six month mark. So that was, let's say February of 2019 of when we officially started trying. And we tried for about six months. I was 33 at the time. And you're typically supposed to try for a year if you're less than 35. But anybody that knows me knows that patience is not my strong suit. So <laughs> I tried for about six me months. Me neither. <laughs> Yeah, I, was I like, hate patience. Patience, yeah, patience does nothing for me. <laughs> nothing at all. So I was like, you know, six months, like, I feel like I should have you know, gotten a little bit farther than I am right now. We went to go get our workups done actually before we started trying, which is a little bit backwards, but I wanted to make sure everything worked like it was supposed to before we, you know, officially started trying per se. And um, everything came back normal. Like um, my workups came up back normal. Nelson's came back normal. We weren't carriers of any genetic diseases or anything like that. So when I, after six months of like everything being normal and us not getting pregnant, I decided to um, find a reproductive oncologist. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly to help us like accelerate us on this journey. So um, that was about a year ago now. Still not pregnant and still just as impatient as I was last year. But um, yeah, that's our journey so far. Got it. Got it. Wow. Yeah. Our, you know, the other reason I had an instant connection with you, Erin, was yes, we have the, you know, whole lacking patience thing in common. Mm -hmm. And then we also have gone to the same clinic, which... (laughs) We won't name on this show, but someday we might. Um, (laughs) We'll just keep everybody guessing, or maybe we'll just share it with a few people. Um, But we were also able to kind of share stories about clinics. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I thought you would just be the perfect person to have on today to talk about 
you know, the biggest factors when searching for a fertility clinic. Mm-hmm. And um, today is extra special because I'm so fired up about this topic. I, um, you know, to catch to catch everybody up to date, Erin, um, you already know this because I keep you mm-hmm. posted on things twice a day. But um, for the listeners, I just recently changed clinics um, with somebody who is very well, has a really good reputation in the Bay, Bay Area. Mm-hmm. She's well recognized in the fertility world. And, um, and she was you know, looking at my blood work and she just saw some holes in the blood work that I had already gotten done. And it just makes you like so grateful, you know, when you find somebody who is like, who's just like a hound dog, just like sniffing everything out and trying to find mistakes and fill in Mm -hmm. holes. And like, I don't know, you just feel really cared for. So with that, on that note, Mm-hmm. Let's get into our number one factor, which is doctor yeah. reputation. Yeah, and I, um, I think um, what I skipped over the first uh, when I did my overview is that we've been diagnosed with unexplained infertility, which basically means WTF, we don't know what's going on from a doctor. And it's so frustrating. So what Millie was saying about like having a doctor that really like looks for looks into your medical records is so important and somebody that, you know, truly values like finding an answer because saying that you have unexplained infertility basically means like, we don't know, you don't know, like we all just don't know. And it's so frustrating. You want to kind of pinpoint it to exactly what's preventing you from getting pregnant. And when a doctor just labels you with that, it's just like, yeah, I'm going to stop looking for why you can't get pregnant. I just know you can't. So, um, the unexplained infertility, a lot of doctors, I know um, the doctor that Millie's mentioning, don't believe in unexplained infertility because they believe there's a reason and they keep looking after it and trying to figure out what that reason is instead of just labeling you like eh, unexplained, you know, or whatever the case is. And I think and, the doc. oh, go ahead. <laughs> well, and the unexplained infertility is like the diagnostic technical term, which is mm-hmm. bullshit. Like, come on. That j- like, to me, that to me sounds like you're not looking hard enough. Yeah. You know, like try to find, there's got to be some red flag somewhere or even some yellow flags. Look for <laughs> any goddamn flag out there. Yeah. You know, yeah. and investigate. So that brings us to doctor reputation, mm-hmm. which is the number one factor Aaron and I feel mm-hmm. that people should consider when looking for a fertility clinic. So Aaron, how about you start with why you think this is number one when looking for a clinic? So I think different people value different things just in life in general, but in a doctor. So for me, I wanted a doctor that could kind of like lift me up because this infertility stuff is like pretty depressing. So I wanted somebody that had, you know, hope and you know, that hope would turn into some positivity on my journey. I wanted somebody that was like well-educated and, you know, worked for a reputable clinic, of course. And then I just wanted somebody that was relatable. You spend like so much time at these fertility clinics. If you don't like the person or if they're not relatable, it could be even more painful than it already is. So I um, spend a lot of my time, more time than I'd like to admit, on fertility IQ. <laughs> and that's basically the Yelp for um, fertility doctors. So I, I went on there and I, you know, I searched the page, I read reviews, I looked at the ratings, like 
like you would do if you're ordering from a restaurant almost, but you're just like looking at the reviews for a person, in this case being a doctor. And I found my doctor first before I found my clinic and his reviews were great. Um, I felt like once we met with him, he's pretty relatable. So I met with him actually by myself and then Nelson didn't go back until like several months later. And when Nelson met with him, he also felt like he had a connection. And I, I felt like that was very important for both of us to, you know, believe in the doctor and have that connection. And um, that's really how we picked our clinic. But it's important to know a lot of clinics, um, similar to how OBGYNs work, is that you have to rotate through different doctors. So unless it's like a one-stop shop of the doctor has their own clinic, um, you're likely going to be seeing the doctor that you choose, but then also his or her counterparts in that same office. So that came to surprise um, to a surprise by me because I wasn't aware that I'd be seeing like so many doctors um, the clinic that Millie and I went to, I think, has like eight or so doctors. So you, the yep. likelihood of seeing your your individual doctor each time is very low. So you have to kind of get familiar and comfortable with all the doctors. And I didn't really understand that going in. Well, and that's like a huge, you know, you can get blindsided by that. Mm-hmm. You know, you think that you're going to be working one-on-one with an individual throughout your whole journey, and then periodically you're going in for a lot of appointments, guys. You know, you're 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 in there mm-hmm. twice, three times a week, sometimes four. And when you're seeing different people, I mean, that was one thing that really turned me off from mm-hmm. the first clinic that both of us went to, was it was just like, uh, I'm not building a relationship anymore with mm-hmm. my doctor. I'm just like in this cycle of like seeing one person one day and another person another day. And just, mm-hmm. I, it's yeah, hard to build, room. build yeah, emotional. A there too. Yep. Yes. Yes. There's so, a lot there, of Mary? room. <laughs> you should go there. I should go 100%. there. 100%. So the clinic that Millie and I were going to, I had had two IUIs. Um, The first IUI did not work. um, And then the second one was a chemical pregnancy. And then I did um, IVF cycle. I did the first transfer, it didn't work. The second transfer actually resulted in a clinical error. And the clinical error was kind of to what Millie was saying. It's like it's hard to build trust in that relationship when you're seeing so many doctors. And I had seen one doctor before my transfer. And then the day of the transfer, I saw a completely different doctor. And then the doctor that realized that there was a clinical error was a third doctor. So I have one transfer. I've seen three different doctors. And somehow in the midst of seeing all these doctors, my the date that I was scheduled for for the transfer was wrong. So my doctor wrote down the wrong, the right date, and then somehow it got you know messed up in the system. And you know, there's a room for error when you're not seeing the same person each time. So I don't know if it was transcribed incorrectly or what, but somebody messed up. What a grave error. Yeah. Like, how devastating is that? Like, and it's just literally a scheduling thing. It's a clinical error. It's not Mm -hmm. like a technical error or, you know, they got the wrong dosage of medicine wrong or it's just so something basic is like a schedule. It's like basically too many cooks in the kitchen. Like when you're you're growing so fast and, you know, I really like my doctor. I still like him to this day, but it's just like they're growing so fast trying to accommodate so many patients that the level of care is compromised. And when that level of care is compromised, then beca- then it, then errors happen and things like that. Yep. Yep. 
Well, that dovetails quite nicely. This is the mm-hmm. second time I've used the term dovetail in this interview. Maybe going to go for three. I don't know. <laughs> um, but let's go to number two, which is lab reputation. Mm-hmm. Um So, oh, one other thing that I want to say, sorry, I'm going to rewind for a quick second, um, about the doctor reputation. What I am learning more and more about is just like, this is going to be super woo-woo for people, but, you know, here I go, is like the mind and body connection when you're going through this journey is so important, and the... The reassurance that I have with this new doctor is insurmountable. Like, I can't even compare it to the connection I had with other doctors. And so my mind is at ease a little bit more. Like, I'm a little bit more relaxed. I have more faith in this person. And, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but I'm sure that's going to help my odds moving forward. You know what I mean? Yeah, because you're not spending time. Like for me, when I had this error happen, I was going home and spending like hours online Googling. Or even before the error happened, when I just felt like, hey, something just doesn't seem right. I'm like spending so much time because I I lack that trust. And I'm trying to find like the answer on my own. And I'm no doctor. So Dr. Google isn't going to prove anything to me. But it's how I felt like I was doing the best I can. And if you have a doctor that you fully trust, you don't have to spend time doing all the extra research because you you trust that their plan is the best one for you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Well, let's go into lab reputation. Lab reputation is so important. And Erin, um, I don't know if you remember this, but you told me about a lab in San Francisco mm-hmm. that had a malfunction and lost thousands of embryos. A couple of years ago. Can you fill all the listeners in on that situation? Yeah, I think this was 20, maybe 18, maybe 2017. There was, I think the generator went down. And as you know, embryos are frozen. So the they were thawed and they couldn't be um, rescued, essentially. And thousands of people lost like, all of their um, their embryos in this error that happened at the the clinic. I think they've since redeemed themselves. There was a class action lawsuit, but I can only imagine if, you know, I was proactive enough to save my embryos and say, hey, I want to live my best life for five years before I use these. And then I go to use them and they're, you know, ruined. um, There's no way to get the time back. Like, of course, they can give you another egg retrieval, but if years have passed since you've frozen those embryos, the likelihood of your success is much lower. So, um, Choosing a clinic, I think a lot of these cases are very public. So I know this happened actually at a clinic in the Midwest as well. So just doing your research on have they had anything like that, first and foremost, because as soon as I you know, realized that I was going to be moving towards the path of IVF, I wanted to make sure that the clinic I was working with didn't have anything like that happen. And not to say that um, the clinic I'm at now is exempt from that happening or any clinic is, but just kind of knowing that they've taken necessary precautions so it doesn't happen is is reassuring. Yeah. And I also think that like that can be a question when you book a consult with a new doctor is mm-hmm. what labs what lab do you guys u- use? And you can mm-hmm. then go and google it and, you know, do your own bit of research on the lab. 
Yeah, because a lot have their own labs and then some people use other labs. So that is important, something that I definitely didn't think about beyond the fact of I want a lab that doesn't, you know, have a malfunction. But, you know, knowing where where your eventual tissue is going to be stored is super important. And I think, Millie, you had mentioned something, I think, when you were doing some lab research kind of recently about the equipment. And that's something that I didn't look into. So I think for the listeners, that may be good to um, shed some light on as well. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you brought that up. So one of the while I was in the middle of my IUI process, I got two consults. And one of them was a doctor in Berkeley, and then the other doctor was a doctor in San Ramon, which is the one I'm currently with. And the doctor in Berkeley, you would walk into his um offices and it was like you were walking into an episode of Family Ties or <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, it, it was just like so old. You know, I just was like, oh my God, this is, I feel like I'm being transported to the 1970s right now. And like his his sonogram machine, which is what, you know, they all do the ultrasounds on to count the follicles and other things. Um, it was like, it was like an old Doogie Hauser computer. And I was like, ooh, this doesn't feel great right now. You know, like, if that's what the equipment was like in the front of the office, I can't imagine what the equipment is like behind closed doors in the lab. Mm. I honestly, I didn't really do all of the research but um, because I ended up going with somebody else. Um, so it was just like, it was just a small indicator that I might want to look into a different direction. So, Aaron, let's move on to factor number three, mm-hmm. which is success rates and stats. Um, how do people find out about the clinic's rates or like mm-hmm. or success rates and what do you think is the best website to look at for clinics and their numbers so i asked the clinic directly first um and then after i asked the clinics they may have the more recent information a lot of them have like cards in their office and they'll say um they'll break it down by age and success rate by age um based on whatever treatment there is so um, typically, it's focused on IVF. I'm sure there's stats on IUI as well, but um, most offices are going to focus on their IVF stats. And I think it's usually broken down by less than 35, like 35 to 38, 38 to 40, and then 40 plus. Because as we all know, fertili- um, a large factor in determining fertility is the, um, the age of the mother. So I asked the clinics first, but also I asked like a qualifying question. So not like, hey, what are your rates for a 34-year-old that's going to go through IVF? But what are your rates for a 34-year-old with my diagnosis and similar protocol? Because that kind of breaks it down to another level. Because if I'm 34 and I have unexplained infertility, my success rates are going to look very different than somebody who is 34 and has PCOS or somebody that's 34 that has endometriosis. And um so I want to make sure that I'm asking, you know, the right question with the correct qualifier. And then um, they'll give me some basic information. I love to research online. So I go to Google after that and start doing some 
um, comparison. So Fertility IQ actually does track it by, um, by clinic as well, and they'll compare the clinic success rates with the national averages, and there's actually a bar graph. So I'm a pretty visual person, so I can actually see, oh, this clinic is ahead of the national average or they're below, whatever the case may be. And then um, there's, I think it's SART.org, Society of Assisted Reproductive Technology, and then ASRM, which is the Association of Reproduction Medicine. So they both keep um, stats as well. Um, Millie and I had a few conversations offline about some of those stats are pretty old. So I think the clinic we were going to, their stats were from 2017, and um, they've grown significantly since then. So not knowing the, stat, the more recent stats is probably a sign that I ignored, <laughs> but I still kind of went ahead with, um, with my, my treatment there. But um, understanding the stats and the recency of the stats, I think, is important, and then understanding how it relates to you and your treatment. Totally. That was, that was very well ar articulated. Oh, thank you. I think, yeah, I think that like, um, I like that protocol of, you know, asking the clinic first for those numbers, but like getting really specific about, you know, your situation, you know, and asking them about your age group, your diagnosis, you know, um, mm -hmm. Those numbers are crucial um, because you don't want to be compared to somebody who is doesn't have the similar problems as you, you know. Um, so I, yes, I remember just kind of going back to what you said about the clinic that we were at not having updated their stats since 2017. I remember seeing that and being like, oh, my God. Is this a red flag, yellow flag? I don't know what it is, but I you know, you don't you don't really let small things like that derail you until it's like an accumulation of of problems mm -hmm. that you're like, "Oh yeah, that was another red flag." You know, looking back on it in hindsight, like I should have probably questioned that a little bit further. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think in this process, you're so used to getting bad news that like a little, a little bad news along the way, you always keep on ticking until you have like a ton of bad news from, you know, a compilation of all of that little bad news becomes like a ton. And then you're like, okay, what, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, do I yep. need to make a change? Yep. Well, let's move on to factor number four, which is location. Mm -hmm. Why is location important in your opinion? I think it goes back to what I was saying about the doctor is important because you spend so much time there. The location is important because you spend so much time there. So if you're in the Bay Area or any other large metropolitan city, you know that, you know, traffic is bad. And when you're going to a clinic like two and three times a week, I mean, I think the week of the egg retrieval, you're going there maybe every other day or every day, depending on what your follicle growth is. Sitting in traffic to go, you know, let's say you're sitting in traffic 30 minutes each way, that's an hour, and then typically the appointment's maybe 20 minutes. So you're sitting in traffic like three times more time than actually the appointment is itself. And it just is like you're putting so much stress on your body emotionally, you're going through a lot, you have a lot of hormones like running up and down your body. You don't want to add to the mix of like having road rage or I know like I get like super anxious when I, you know, feel like I'm going to miss an appointment. I have, um, 
I, I decided to choose a clinic that was close to my job. And this was when we were still going into the office. And it, it made sense because I could get to work. And then I would go from work to the appointment. But I actually worked from home one day and I had to go from home to the appointment and I was in traffic for an hour and a half, like totally missed my appointment. And I'm like freaking out. I'm like, is this going to delay me? And that additional stress on top of what my body was already experiencing is just not, it's not healthy. So um, just picking somewhere that you know is going to be convenient that you can get to um, quickly if, you know, if possible. And then if your partner is going with you as well, you want to make sure that it's convenient for them if they have to go to work and come meet you on a lunch break. So there's a lot of um, different dynamics to think about, but um, you don't want to spend the majority of your fertility treatment in traffic. <laughs> That's right. the moral of the story on my moral end. Of, yeah, it, it's so important. I mean, you're there all the time mm-hmm. and you – yeah, it adds on. Like some of these appointments are maybe only 10 minutes. You yep. drive an hour there, an hour back. That's two hours in the car for a 10-minute appointment. Mm-hmm. You know, it. you got to, you know, and however, I mean, for some people who have a private jet and can <laughs> fly back and forth to the Colorado Reproductive Medicine, you know, shrine, high holy place for fertility, (laughs) um, you know, good for them. But that's not, I, you know, it's a, it's a huge lifestyle shift when you start doing this treatment and you want to make sure that like, you're not going to add any more stress on to the situation. And I also would say that like, now while location is important, everybody should note that we didn't put it as number one. Like, that was when I was first looking for the clinic that we were both at. Like, location was the number one factor for me. I was like, oh, my God, this location is like 10 minutes from my house. This is great. You know, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it wasn't the clinic for me. Um, So there's a reason it's at number four. It's still important, but it's not Mm -hmm. the most important. Yeah. Um, so let's go into number five, which kind of, I don't know, it sort of relates to number four, um, in terms of like resources and the number five, you know, the fifth factor that people should consider when looking for a clinic is financial. So like, you know, you got to think about your resources, for location, it's time. For financial, it's money. So getting your medical insurance to cover the cost of fertility treatments in the U.S. is very rare. But you, Aaron, are someone that has that type of insurance. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think the the fact that we have it, and I say we because both Nelson and I both have the insurance. So um, it's definitely a blessing, but I think it accelerated our journey to where we are right now. I can't say that I would have moved to IVF as fast as I did if I didn't have insurance because it is a large financial obligation and it was just something that wasn't in our plans financially. I mean, I would have having a child is, is in our plans financially. And I think that if it was our only option, 
I would have um, saved and probably started IVF maybe around this time. So given myself a year to get the finances together and everything. But since we didn't have to think about that, I was like, well, you know, I'm in, I'm under the age of 35 and I know that my eggs are never going to be as good as they are today. So might as well accelerate this and, um, and do the IVF at, at a minimum for, um, insurance, no pun intended for, but like family planning insurance. So like, you know, we can try on our own, but we have these embryos banked just in case, you know, trying on our own doesn't work. So our fertility insurance is through Progeny, through our employer. It's P-R-O-G-Y-N-Y. And um, it's a, it's not like an Anthem or um, Kaiser insurance or anything like that. It's actually like a standalone fertility insurance. And they provide our insurance in the form of cycles. So like we get three cycles per insured person. So between Nelson and I together, we'll have six. And each treatment um, is a part of a cycle. So like an IUI was a fourth of a cycle. Um, an IVF freeze-all, which is what we did, was a half of a cycle. So I think right now I have a one and a half cycles left. And Nelson has three cycles left because he didn't use any of his. But um, it saved us. I think I got our bill at the end of the year. It saved us like almost... $40,000 of um, fertility treatments because I know the IUIs were like, you know, two or three grand a piece. And then the full IVF and the transfer last year were also really expensive. So when I got like my end of the year statement um, through that insurance, I was just very, very thankful because I know that everyone doesn't have it. And a lot of people can't afford it, the treatment if they don't have, um, you know, support financially. So I think um, that kind of summarizes the, the insurance piece. But Financially, it is an obligation and you need to understand that, you know, basically what you're getting yourself into. Like a lot of people save money. I know Nelson and I save money to have a kid, but you don't expect to spend that money to get to having the kid. You expect to yeah. use that money once you have the kid. So um, right. it's, it's right. just a shift that you have to make and um, it's something that you have to really discuss. I, I recommend a financial planner if it's something that you and your partner can't work out on your own, but just making sure that you're, you know, saving because essentially if you do get pregnant you still want you need to have somebody saved as well so yep yep a hundred percent um and I think the do you think Aaron that the um clinic that you were at that you did do the egg retrieval with um they saw your insurance and were like, ooh, she's got good insurance. We're going to bill them. So let's kind of – let's expedite her to IVF a little bit more quickly. Yeah, and I, I think they did do that, but I think that the doctor knew that I wanted to have multiple children. So I think if I said, hey, I just want to have one child, like, help me get there, I think he would have, like, slow rolled it a little bit. But given that I wanted to have multiple um, – he fast tracked me, I, I would say, quote unquote, to IVF. So I did two IUIs and then I was done. I've he heard people, I know your last, one of your last episodes, somebody said they had like seven IUIs. And I was like, yep. oh, maybe I should have kept trying the IUI route and see if that would have worked. And if I was paying on my own, most certainly I would have continued IUIs just to like prime me to be paying like twenty or $30,000 for IVF. But in my mind, I was like, okay, I have really nothing to lose but my sanity, right. but I had already lost that <laughs> a few months prior. <laughs> so I was like, might as well go that to IVF. That goes out the window <laughs> Yes. So I had already lost that. So I'm like, might as well keep going. But it's funny because now we did the two IUIs. We did the transfer. We had the one messed up transfer at the clinic. And now I'm going back to IUIs. So um, I used 
the IVF as an insurance and it's like a nice to have. But in our case, it wasn't necessarily a must have. It wasn't like I was told that the only way we will get pregnant is through IVF. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are told that and they have to go. Some people don't even do IUIs. They go straight to IVF. But given that um, we may be able to conceive with an IUI or naturally, I'm just going to save those embryos that I, you know, that I did with IVF for for the future. So in a way, like it was, it was just like hedging myself for the future. Because if I know I'm having trouble getting pregnant now, the likelihood of me having trouble three years from now is probably pretty high. So it gives me and my anxiety a little bit. It puts my anxiety at bay because I'm like, okay, at least I know, like I have these embryos that I can use if I need them. (laughs) Well, and you're also preserving your fertility. Exactly. You know, there's a lot of women in our support group that are 44, 45, 46, Mm -hmm. and they are talking about using donor eggs. You know, because when you get to, I think it's if you get over the age of 43, Mm -hmm. doctors will not encourage you to use your own eggs. They will tell you to get donor eggs at that point. So, you know, however long or however long you want this journey to last, Mm -hmm. you still have those embryos. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is, a preservation for the future because I know – for certain, we want to have more than one child. So, like, I'll just try different ways of getting pregnant now. But, um, you know, and maybe I want to space my kids out. And I don't necessarily want to be preg- trying to get pregnant naturally at 39 or 40. So I have that as an option. So it, it's it's a really nice, like, backup option. It's not my only option. Yep, yep. And so on my end, I'm paying for stuff out of pocket. I have Kaiser which is um, which is a large medical group in Northern California. Um, and it's a it's an HMO, so everything's kind of in network. And um, even though I love my OBGYN, Kaiser makes you jump through so many, so many, so many hoops in order to get any type of response treatment, prescription, blood work. I mean, in terms, like when I was getting, when I was recruiting all of these consults from different doctors, I went to my OBGYN and I was like, I'm just curious about what type of coverage I have for my insurance. You know, can you refer me to a reproductive endocrinologist? And um, I needed to have an appointment with her to get a referral. And then Before I could even talk to somebody on the phone, I had to get some blood work done. So I had to get some blood work done, and now I'm just now going to have a phone call appointment with a reproductive endocrinologist through my insurance Mm. um, tomorrow. Oh, wow. And I started that process back in December, you know, so it's taken me four months to oh, get a hold crazy. of somebody, which is crazy. And, and when you know, you're in this position, you like each day, each hour, it's like it makes a difference. Granted, neither of us are old, 
of the geriatric age yet. I mean, it's only on the horizon. I'm already 34. But it seems like everything's like a chase against the clock with infertility. And when you yeah. try to be proactive, there's so many stops along the way of, of you getting there. It's just really frustrating. It's like, can you appreciate the fact that I am being proactive? I don't want to be racing against the clock at 35 or 36. Like, let me, you know, help me, please. But it's yeah. like they don't want to help you until you tried all other avenues. Which is such, oh, God, it's just like healthcare in America, man. Mm-hmm. Woof. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's so tough. Um, but my, you know, my husband and I feel fortunate enough that um, we had some money saved for when we have a kid mm-hmm. that we are now dipping into for trying to, I mean, even get there. So we won't be completely, you know, shit out of luck once, you know, we start the IVF process. We'll have a little bit of money still in the bank. But it is like, it's a massive, massive, it, like I thought, you know, putting two months rent down on my first like apartment my adult apartment was going to be, like, the biggest check that I ever write, you know? But then I, like, am writing checks at fertility clinics, and you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> I don't even know how to spell this word. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways, it's important. But, like, it's a lot of money, and that's why you really want to make sure that it's the right person. Mm-hmm. One of That's my what friends I would that say. went through this herself, she said that after she paid all this money, she always she always has the fact, like the carrot that she can hold over her daughter's head, like, you know how much I paid to bring you into this world? Because, well, you know, your average parent doesn't, you know, they 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 can't say that. But and she's just totally. joking. But it's but it's true. It's like you're going to pay like granted, I didn't pay myself at my insurance paid, but it's like fifty thousand dollars <laughs> to I bring know. a child into this world. Well, did I tell you what my OBGYN calls her kids? What? So my OBGYN went through IVF, Mm -hmm. and she calls them her Cadillac children. (laughs) (laughs) She's like, like, some people pay more for a Cadillac. I just had to pay more for a kid, you know? Like, they're my Cadillac children. I just thought that's so funny. I don't know. Like, if I ever write a play, it's going to be called Cadillac Children. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Erin, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show. I'm so glad we got to talk about this. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much for the invite again. Yep. And we will be in touch. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Me, Myself, and Millie. Follow us on Instagram at Me, Myself, Millie for more podcast updates. If you enjoyed the show, please like and subscribe and share on social media. A special thanks to my husband, Rowan Brooks, for technical support and Cal Reichenbach, who did all the music you heard in this episode. You can check him out at calzonemusic.com. Thanks, cutie bombs, and see you next week. 